everybody and welcome today to uh, another Wiser Wednesday. Really good to um, have everyone on board and really excited um, for the panelists we have today. So the discussion is around creating a culture of innovation. Um, and yeah, I guess just a little bit about myself. I'm James Potton. I believe in a world of entrepreneurial success without burnout. Uh, I've got the t-shirt to prove it. It's only slightly charred. Um, so innovation, what a topic. Uh, I believe, Draco said it, business is just one of two things, like marketing or innovation, and we're focusing on the latter today. Um, so let me introduce the panelists and, uh, and then we'll get going. So Sue Turner, uh, OBE, great to have you here. You're CEO of AI Governance. Sue has long dedicated um, herself to supporting British entrepreneurship, uh, helping disadvantaged people improve their lives. Uh, we met whilst you were running Quartet uh, a, a few years back, Sue, and um, actually you, you became, um, you know, someone who I could sort of lend an ear to whilst I was also running a charity. So, being, you know, the other way around. So you were, you were brilliant to, um, yeah, just help me understand a bit more about what the role was and what, what was needed. So, um, yeah, you took a brave move uh, back in 2020 to do an MSc in AI and Data Science. And you're awarded your OBE um, for services to justice, uh, social justice. So congratulations. Not spoken to you since then. Um, you now inspire and support boards to innovate and use AI um, for uh, and data for profit and social impact. So great to have you here, Sue. Jules, um, you're an author. You've got a book. <laughs> so you wrote Enlightened Business. Um, and you're a leadership and organization uh, consultant working with small uh, right up through to large corporates. You're human-centered um, in your approach. Um, and enlightened business is all about unleashing human um, potential. And yeah, look, I we met, and this is you know a number of years ago, at least ten years ago, I think. And um, I was just getting into meditation then, and I started to question about how leadership could work and how leadership could be different. And your book um, had a lot of the answers in that for me. So um, thank you, and it was brilliant to have met you um, back then, Simon, uh, CEO Nementsa. Um, Simon, you've got like really inter interesting like, backstory. You had a chronic stutter as a child and went through speech therapy until you were 16. Um, and, and it's the reason why you're into accessibility and inclusion now. Um, consequently, you were bullied. Um, your mother was a single parent, didn't know what to do and took you to martial arts class. Uh, and the bullying stopped within months. And you've been a student of nine schools since then uh, in ninjutsu. So, you know, re really like, you know, in inspiring story. And would love to hear more about your, your passion for accessibility today as well. So finally, Paul uh, Cochran, you're also MD of uh, Interim Consult. Uh, in the 90s, you appeared on BBC's QED uh, science programme talking about um, your research into what was called electronic noise. There was a dog shortly after that was doing a um, sniffing out explosives and your family were way more impressed with that. So um, you decided to shift from academia into entrepreneurship uh, and you've been helping others do the same um, ever since. Uh, by the way, he's still got the, re the, the recording but can't play it. So if anyone's got a spare Betamax, please loan it to him. So off we go. Um, what an amazing panel. Just to set the mood, like a bun fight is a fun night. So jump in with questions if you want to here within the panel. Um, we're live, so no swearing uh, and bad jokes are always welcome, such as to whoever so stole my copy of Microsoft Office, I will find you. You have my word. Boom. <laughs> Come on. What? <laughs> You're upsetting yourself there. I know. Thank you. Right. So starting from Jules, let's do a quick intro. It's like a minute um, for... To, to where you are now. So what was your your, your journey to, um, yeah, I guess, being inspired 
by you know culture and innovation and you know how you are where you are today so Jules first floor Jules. James thanks for thanks for kicking us off there uh, yeah my career took off really with um uh, just a lucky break where I was offered the opportunity to work in Silicon Valley. I joined Cisco right when it was just taking off in the late 90s. Uh, so I had that whole Bay Area experience. But at that point, although it was already, I would say, a large company, it had that startup feel. Um, and I loved it. I thrived on it and then joined a startup myself, um, which uh, had its challenges and uh, it was great to grow with it, uh, but ultimately kind of did the whole burnout thing um, working in the States, you know, just long, long, long hours for many, many years. Um, and I just took a break, did a yoga teacher training, spent some time in India and um, just did a really long, deep dive about what's this all about. Set up on my own, um, continued to work with, uh, with culture, which then obviously led into working with leaders because I believe that leaders uh, really shape organizations and really make the difference between uh, organizations being successful or not. And uh, whether or not they are innovative or not, it actually depends on the leaders as well. So uh, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm, I've been independent since 2008 now and still loving every minute. Awesome, great. Thanks, thanks, Jules. I'll go around the screen. So uh, next, next up here, I've got Simon. So, yeah, thank, thank you for that in introduction. And it's really good to be on on this panel with these uh, great and inspiring people. So, like, like Paul, I got out of academia in the mid nineties um, and got into this thing called the World Wide Web. Um, kind of was one of those people that said, hey, this thing is going to really revolutionize how we communicate, collaborate and, and, and share and, and do things. And people thought at the time that I was, you know, just obviously doing something different. And then it turned out to be a, a, a pretty big deal. And I had a company um, that actually became the largest independent web design company in the UK. And within that company, I had a... Um, a user-centered design group, which is the group that actually became Nomensa. And the reason I kind of shifted from, say, the, the, the web to, to experience was I kind of realized flying around the world, doing internet projects for, for clients, that the real, you know, the real action, you know, the, 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 the real focus was in how we delivered experience. And at that time, the, the, the W3C started to get into accessibility. So we kind of um, took the, 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 the group from one company and, and um, moved that into a bedroom. And, uh, you know, we've gone from, you know, three of us to now probably over 250 people as an independent agency in the UK. So that kind of, that means not so much the number, but the things that we've had to accomplish in terms of scaling and how you organize and things like that and we're very very proud of being very flat so I run the mentor in a very flat way I don't believe in like status or privilege or those sorts of things so we, we it's often odd to us that when we hear about you know gender imbalances and stuff like that because we're the, the you know we we tend to be 50 50 or, or you know there's more females than males and we kind of like you know it's, it's all about people, it's all about humanizing. So my whole thing is about the best people, wherever they come from, whatever they are, are important. So it's like mind power. And, and yeah, today user experience seems to be a very popular thing that um, 
fellow board members ask me about to help them achieve. It comes in that flavor called customer experience, but it's all experience from my perspective. Brilliant. All right. Thank you, Simon. And uh, yeah, look forward to hearing more, more about that, um, that journey as well. So, uh, Paul, uh, you're up next. Hi, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, James. Uh, I started off as an engineer and I've had a sort of random walk of a career is probably the best way of describing it without any particular plan or any, uh, any particular ambition. So I started off in uh, academia, uh, did a PhD in AI, and that was back in the 1990s uh, when training neural networks used to take overnight or maybe a couple of nights rather than sort of 10 seconds on your, on your PC. And it's interesting to see what that's meant for artificial intelligence you know, in the, uh, in the sort of wider industry. Uh, just by sort of through random consultancy and research, I ended up moving into uh, industry, uh, works in a number of different sectors, uh, defence, uh, transport, a number of different roles, uh, board roles on FTSE, uh, sort of on uh, aim-listed businesses, uh, SMEs. Uh, I now run my own business, uh, and Consult. I was part of a, a large uh, corporate uh, aiming infrastructure services. I ran their consultancy division. That was a 500 million turnover business. And if you were to ask me, you know, how did all this start? How did I end up where I am? I've not got any particular idea. There was never any real particular plan. But one thing I've been passionate about all the way through my career is about, as an engineer in a way, is about how you take technology and how you create value from it. And when I set up Interim Consult, which is now uh, two years old, uh, it was very much a vehicle to pursue what I was interested in. And the innovation theme has been something that's been there now for a couple of years. When I work with, uh, I work with government now and with a number of industry leaders, so DFT base, a number of MDs and CEOs from various uh, UK transport businesses uh, in the main, done some work in the space sector as well. And it's interesting, you know, the types of challenges that they face in relation to innovation. Everybody wants more of it, but nobody's really quite sure how. And I just find that sort of the complexity of that and the challenge of that really interesting. So, Thanks, Paul. Well, look, very, you know, Absolutely cool to the topic today. So look forward to hearing uh, more from you too. And yeah, finally, uh, Sue, um, obviously AI is is a very innovative, innovative space right now. So uh, yeah, tell us about your journey. Yeah, I, I spent 50% of my career working for really dynamic private sector businesses and 50% working for not-for-profits. So what I try to do is cross-fertilise the best of each into the other. So that's growth and uh, and uh, the, the commercial side, but cross-fertilising that with social purpose as well. Um, right now, I'm chair of a professional membership organisation, as well as being non-executive director of financial services business and running my own consultancy. And I guess sort of the common thread running through it all, apart from the, the purpose and, and value piece, is, is data. And, and um, I've been really frustrated in roles, that's whether I was chief executive, non-exec director or chair, just this incredible frustration that I could see data in the organisation, but we, we couldn't get insights from it, just sort of sat there in databases, sort of dumb and, and, uh, and unhelpful. And, and I'd heard about this thing called AI. I should have been talking to Paul years ago, clearly, but I, I couldn't find ways to use it to unlock insights. I spoke to people at universities and they said, yeah, we don't really know how to help you either. 
So I then heard about the government backing a new um, conversion course or series of conversion courses across the country to bring diverse talent into artificial intelligence and data science. So that's how I came to take the master's degree. And absolutely fascinating. The first five weeks were just intense learning to code. And then the rest of the degree was about using that in really practical ways. Uh, And so I established AI governance because... I'm just really passionate about helping business people to understand what AI can do for their businesses. And it it is about innovation. Um, And my inspiration really comes from opportunities that I was lucky enough to have at quite a young age that helped me overcome disadvantage. And that's given me a real passion for shifting power. You know, so those like big tech companies that have a lot of power uh, and then the rest of the world that, that has relatively little. So how we can inspire people to figure out, to innovate, to use AI pragmatically. But the key part for me is with wisdom and integrity, because AI can be used on purpose or accidentally for some, some very nasty um, purposes and to have some very negative impact. So trying to get that culture right and the acceptance right that, that there are these negatives and people wanting to, to set up their structures and their governance so that it's about the, the positive impact that they want to create is, uh, is really exciting to me. Uh, I don't have all the answers, but I have lots of questions and, and working with boards to ask those questions and, uh, and figure out where the, the nuances lie. It's, it's lots of gray areas, which I find very exciting. Brilliant. Great. Thank you, Sue. Um, so, uh, yeah, like, I mean, the, I think an important place to start in this discussion is, um, you know, when we're talking about creating a culture of innovation is to try and define innovation uh, and maybe what we um, mean by that when we say it. So um, um, I throw that sort of question to Paul to begin with, and then obviously, you know, others are welcome to join in. So over to you, Paul. What's innovation? Yeah, thanks, James. It's a really important subject to define what innovation is because there tends to be a focus on things such as product and service development seen as being you know, the engines of innovation. But uh, in Interim Consult, we have a very clear uh, definition that is, in, that is innovation is turning ideas into sustainable value. And the reason we use the value term is that the value can come in many different forms. It's not just about financial. It's... Uh, could be environmental, social, economic, well-being, and in reality, it's usually a mix of those things. And so if you look at innovation and the importance of increasing your capacity and capability to innovate, what that actually means is it's increasing your capability and capacity to create value. So it's a different perspective, and I think that's something around that basically unlocks the opportunity for people to innovate, because it's not prescriptive in terms of particular competence say you know in technology that you have to have to innovate you know great ideas can come from anywhere and those great ideas can turn into value in all sorts of different forms yeah that capability and capacity like you know really resonates with you know a lot of you know what i hear and you know the sort of work that i'm doing as well so yeah Simon, you talk about capability and capacity quite a lot as well. I've known you've done so in in recent discussions we've had. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that it's a tricky thing because I think we all can recognise innovation can be one of those words that that can lose can lose its meaning. Um, so I think to Paul's point, it's about showing the relevance of what innovation can do, and I. Th- and you know, going back to that point about capability, you know, what are the, you know, what are the ways of thinking that actually help people to innovate? And I suppose 
for me, what I'm interested in is, is, is thinking about how people think before they start doing what they're doing. So what I mean by that is that often when I get involved with innovation, what happens is that people are doing stuff. It's like, if we make this thing, we create this feature, we will basically deliver that, that, that outcome, this impact, that benefit. And I'm one of those people that will say, okay, well, what's the human need that actually that supports? And they go, well, what, what, what do you mean the human need? And I'm like, well, if it's gonna be perceived as valuable to someone outside of us calling it a feature, what is the human need? And what I found is that when you start to think about human need as a wrapper for how you basically define and shape value, things can be quite different. I always give the example of um, you know, sat with a bunch of bankers, you know, they, they make money by giving people money, right? Mortgages, loans, etc. cetera. Um, you know, the idea is, well, people want a mortgage. And I'm like, no, no, they don't. No, no one has ever woken up ever in the history of forever and actually wanted a mortgage. They want a home. They want to change their home. They need a mortgage. Now, the point of that is I've gone, yeah, OK, there's the need. So I'm, I'm giving them this idea of the need. The issue is the way that they present their design experience is one where they are kind of telling people what they want. And we're now becoming a little bit more enlightened and realizing, well, actually, people, people, will, people will, will tell us uh, what they want if we can show them it supports what they need. It's really sophisticated and really subtle. And, and I suppose in, in one way, what I'm saying is that this is the art of user experience design. It's not trying to fit something to people. It's about trying to discover what needs that they have and they're trying to make that solution whatever it is fit to it so that's the way that i kind of um come at in innovation but but to paul's point i really do like that the idea of value and i think of everything in terms of relevance you know is it relevant does it reflect hum human needs great thanks simon um sue so, um is there anything you'd like to add on onto that and also i guess try to define what we mean by creating a culture that nurtures innovation yeah, so bring, bring those two together. Um, I remember when I, I first uh, went to a, a brainstorming session in a business, this was when I was working in a private business, and uh, the post-it notes came out, and somehow this was what the innovation was all about, filling as many post-it notes as you possibly could and sticking them all over the wall, and I hated it. I just hated this whole concept that suddenly my brain was supposed to be sparking with, with loads of ideas that were going to create value for the organisation and solve the, the customers' problems, and, and so for me, innovation is, is not about post-it notes, uh, but it, it is very much, as Simon was saying, they're about thinking about what is the problem we're trying to solve here? You know, what is it that we're actually trying to do differently? And, and for cultures, you know, it's do you have that environment that's really nurturing and, and allows people to think the unthinkable and, and be unorthodox? Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples from my own experience of where it didn't work and perhaps where it has worked better. And where it didn't work was when I was working for a very dynamic, innovative private business. Um, but it was really constrained by the boss, the shareholder, who wanted things done their way. 
Um, and I had some ideas that I thought could, could really probe into some of the things that we were doing. So I've got a background in communications and government relations and PR, which no one else in the business had. So I thought, oh, if I can you know, suggest some ideas here and we could shape something and we could probe and see if this is what some of our customers might find useful. But the boss needed to be the expert in everything. So he was a real barrier and just did not want to know that there was someone else in the organization that could do things differently. Uh, so that was a real constraint and a barrier that made the, the culture, which was supposed to be innovative, innovative, actually fall flat because nobody in the organization could release their own inner skills. Um, the other side of it, the side that worked really well, was um, in the, the not-for-profit world, working for Quartet Community Foundation. When I first came into the organisation, we were really ambitious about what we wanted to do to help more people and communities, but we didn't have the resources. So the constraint there was, was lack of resources. But the people in the organisation were so passionate about what they wanted to do and the problems that they saw and how they wanted to help and overcome them, that they, they had this, this talent that they just needed to be unleashed so what we did there was rather than think about our lack of resources and constraints and innovate just within the, the resources that we had, we said, no, let's listen to the team members. Let's listen to the experiences of the people and communities that we're there for and, and be inspired by that. Um, and one of the biggest inspirations for me was listening to a woman who runs the Greater Buffalo Community Foundation in North America. And she talked about how they changed their community foundation from being um, a service, if you like, for wealthy individuals, for philanthropists to channel their money through to local communities. She'd flip that on his head and said, no, we're a service for the local communities. And we know the local communities. We understand their needs better than anybody else. And then if a philanthropist wants to channel their money through us to reach those people, they can do. And, and we thought about this uh, quite hard and, and what that would mean for us. And we consulted very widely, listened to lots of views and said, yeah, that's what we want to do. We want to be of and for our communities rather than of and for a group of wealthy people. And because we had that focus and we did research and we understood communities better than anybody else, that led to doubling the income and the capital base of the organisation, which then, going back to where I started, meant that we could do all those things that we were ambitious to do in the first place. So I think sometimes with innovation, it's about unleashing the talent of people and getting rid of those constraints uh, and as far as you can, uh, and then seeing what you want to do to, to really change the organisation. Uh, so going back to the first example, I think if the boss is the constraint, then that's a pretty tough one. You're not going to get rid of the boss. So perhaps then you need to remove yourself from that environment and go work somebody else or work somewhere <laughs> else where your talent is actually appreciated. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Zee. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to mention Tesla then, but anyway. Um, so... Yeah, look, there's a lovely segue to, towards um, yourself, Jules, where I'd like to sort of look at what leaders can do to nurture a, a culture of innovation. Um, so, yeah, you know, what, what are some of the things you've seen that work in, in, in organisations? Yeah, thank you. Thank you all. Um, Sue, fantastic stories about what, what good bosses look like and what not so good bosses look like. Um, and I think that first to, to that first point, really, it's about being the role model you know, that is absolutely key. Those qualities to have the humility to listen, which it sounds like obviously that boss didn't have. So um, the, the, the courage to take the bold decisions, the humility to listen, um, the vulnerability to make mistakes, put your hand up and say, I've got this wrong. How do we basically pick ourselves up and move forward? And that's really what creates trust. And it's really difficult to lead in 
when I'm saying create value, you know, love this idea of innovating about creating value. Um, yes, you need, you know, clearly you need a very strong vision, mission and purpose. You know, it's like, why are we here? This compelling reason for why are we getting out of bed in the morning? Um, something larger that people can give themselves to. Um, and, you know, I'm coaching somebody at the moment. I, you know, the question I asked her yesterday is, you know, what would it take for you to walk away? Because the mission is great. The purpose is great. But she is working for a dysfunctional um, leader, sadly. Um, but she's still not willing to give up, you know, because the, the mission is so strong. She believes so strongly in the purpose that she's just like, I'm not I'm not done yet. So it's literally now about, OK, how can she find the courage to even go to board level, even though she's in her early 20s, you know, to actually just say, look, this isn't working. Um, so that that's what leaders need to do. Courage, vulnerability, humility um, to build the trust, create the strong purpose um, and vision. And I think the, the final piece I would say, and this is the most challenging piece, is um, not to go too fast. So I think in entrepreneurial um, organizations and businesses, it's such a fast paced environment. It's all about pace. It's all about time to market. It's all about how quickly can we get the new release out or the new feature out or the product to market. But actually, um, sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. And those convers the richer, deeper conversations that need to take place. So it's that kind of like emergent thinking um, and balancing the structure, the structured way of working with the unstructured way of thinking, um, that that doesn't happen, you know, naturally. It's not how we're, it's not what, it's not how we develop as children. So we enter this adult world of work, and because of our schooling and our education, we're not given this skill to rock up at work and have an empty diary and go, wow, what is today asking of me? What is what is you know what is it that's required of me today in this moment to move not just myself but my people towards that bigger picture and that vision and and the value that we want to create? Um, that's that's challenging. Awesome, thanks, Jules. Yeah, it reminds me um, of, of uh, yeah, a recent discussion actually where where um, one of the panelists panelists was saying it's not waking up with your to-do list, but you're waking up with your to-be list. So who who does the organization need you to be? And I think it's really powerful. Uh, something I've been sort of toying with the last um, few weeks is a, is a concept and um, yeah, it completely changes your, your, your mindset in the sense that actually, yeah, you, you sometimes have to put, put away the person that you, you were to become the person you need to be. So um, it's, it's, it's a really powerful sort of process. Um, Paul, what do you see, um, where do you see leaders going wrong in, 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 the, in this process of? It's interesting because I think there are three things you know, that, uh, that we've sort of identified as being important for leaders to effectively uh, enable. You know, one of those is about you know, providing that purpose and value uh, alignment so, you know, mastering that, creating that. And people have different styles. There's no one best way or you know, one, no one better way or no worse way. But you know, creating that sense of purpose and sense of purpose amongst a business or amongst a team is really important. There has to be a leaning towards people orientation. OK, so you know, people in terms of, you know, cultivating them, you know, the way that they collaborate, the way that they work with, within the organization, the way they work with their customers, the way they work with their suppliers, 
that's the sort of people orientation uh, uh, element to that. But the one thing I just, I just want to touch on is following off what Jules was saying a moment ago, which is about uh, about leaders, you know, and what's what's a really important attribute. Because uh, I think one of the key things, if you want to lead an, an innovative organisation, is you've got to be able to create effectively a learning organisation capability. Uh, and it's really hard because, uh, you know, in terms of a leadership leader, you often talk about accountability and say, what are people accountable for? You know, and I've been in that horrible position in the past, you know, with not necessarily being a founder, but, you know, having walked into an organisation where you know, no matter what you do, it's just not going to work out. You know, you can't fix it and you're just a victim of circumstance. Okay. And you could just be in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, with almost an insurmountable challenge. But for me in that situation, okay, it's difficult to say you're accountable for the results, but what I probably should be held accountable to and leaders should be held accountable for is actually creating a learning organisation so that no matter where you are, at least you know you can take it to the next state. And that's it. Unless you're negligent, you know, or dishonest, you know, then that's a, and that's a discussion for you know, the realm of politics. Then, uh, then you know, there, there aren't really you know, often as not. There's only so much you can do because the types of challenges you face when you go into organisations, you know, big or small, they're complex. You now they're systematic. If you want to get a different result, you have to change the system, and you're one part of that. You know, as a leader, you want you're one piece of that machine. But you know, you get cultures, you get micro cultures. You can only do so much. Yeah, that's that's grateful. Thank you. Um... Is there, uh, does anyone else want to jump in before I move the topic forwards or? Yeah. Go for it, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that, that, that were said there around, you know, the characteristics of, of leadership. And I've, you know, taking my own personal perspective, um, I kind of recently come across this concept of shepherd CEO. And the more I read about it, I thought, well, that's what I do. It's like I lead without having to tell people what to do. I kind of show them the bits that they can copy. Um, and that means, for example, if they don't do something in the way that I would expect it to be done, it's fine. Sometimes they ask me, would you do it like that? And I'm like, no, because I, because I believe in profound honesty. And they say, well, but, but why aren't we going to do it in the way that you want to do it? And I say, because we're going to do it in the way you want to do it. And what I found is that that way of thinking is, is what I would call collaborative. And that collaborative way of thinking encourages learning. So, you know, to Paul's point, you have to, I think, in, you know, the kind of digi-modern 21st century, you have to create a strong learning capability. It has to be something that is, is baked in and continually, you know, reinforced. And I think, for, you know, from what Sue and from what Jules said, to me, those are very clear characteristics of organizations that are trying to create psychological safety which is the complete opposite of blame which is why sometimes things don't work, work out because um you know people are blaming each other or um you know if you're a partner or a supplier or a consultant they're blaming you i'm just one of those people that's quite upfront i just get these things you know straight out in 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 the open my idea is to Paul's point, the best ideas could come from anywhere and nine times out of 10, they're not necessarily mine. So encouraging 
that kind of way of thinking, that kind of way of innovating is, is a way that I sneakily make sure that I'm continually learning, that I'm continually pushing my, myself by, by looking at how other people kind of solve problems and think about things. It's sort of helped me kind of be a self-confessed um, learner tool. I, I love the potential that people have. So limiting their potential seems to me anti-innovative. Right. That point about blame and innovation, I think, is really, really important. I mean, blame kills innovation, you know, in an organisation. You know, there's, there's probably no, if you like, you know, no soft way of really saying that. You know, mistakes do happen. You know, they're going to happen. You know, not everything you do is going to lead to success, despite your best efforts. Now, when it comes to innovation, everything involves risk. You know, there's as much likelihood of failure, you know, as as there is a success. But it is because it does come down to this point. Now, when those things are changing, is your organisational organisation continually learning? Can, can we explore um, and and going back to your your point a little bit earlier, learn organisation, um, Paul? I, I like I like to um, the model of the learning board as well. So you know, how does the you know start from the top, like all areas of the business? It, it's so important, and it. It's like having a board that's that's got its you know antennae, not horns. You know, uh, listening to the outside world is is super important. Something that uh, that I'm confused with that sort of sits with me as a paradox is we're told that we're most innovative in wartime, and that to me feels more like a burning platform and barking up the hill kind of style of leadership than it is the the the, the safe place. I don't know. Sue, uh, Jules, have you got thoughts on on this? Yeah, I think sometimes it's it's easier to change culture when there is something desperate pushing you forward, and uh, and the leaders there are recognising that they don't have all the answers, and they are open to to creating that Simon said that psychologically safe place for people to share their ideas. Uh, I'll give you an example of that at um, the financial services organisation where I'm a non-exec director. We've had to change from being an organisation with over 100 years of history of just doing one thing, providing insurance for a particular part of the community, to saying, actually, the best interests of that community are about them being able to change massively over the next few years. So how can we facilitate that change? And so we talked about, as a board, we talked about being a learning organisation. Uh, and now the rubber's really hitting the road because there's ideas that have been brought forward there's pilots that have been done internally in the organization and some of them work and some of them don't and I keep having to remind the rest of the board members that hang on we said we'd allow for failure so we've got to allow for failure we can't be separating anybody because you know a particular idea has wasted some money let's not look at it as wasted money let's look at it as money we spent on learning yeah it's, it's, it's that whole thing about how you really mean it and uh, and put people in the situation where they can get that creative edge to them and there's a lovely example from the ai world and it actually goes back to 2017 so it's it's not a new one but there's a harley davidson um uh sales outlet if you like in new york I'm not a customer, I should say, um, but they they decided to analyze their customer data using a fairly simple machine learning tool to see what were the characteristics of their most successful and most high spending customers. And they then built a model on that. And then they used that model to look at new customers coming onto their website to figure out where were the potential next generation of high spending customers. 
Uh, and because of this fairly simple way of looking at things, they realized that they could actually increase their sales leads by 3,000%. Wow, you know, which of us wouldn't want a 3,000% increase in sales leads? And that then, of course, led to other innovations in the business. Uh, but, you know, that, that for them was quite revolutionary to try this tool, which not many people were really talking about in that sort of environment in 2017, and then let it lead them into new avenues. Uh, and again, it's, uh, as Jules was saying, it's that humility to allow yourself as a leader to be led somewhere. And Simon was saying, not somewhere where you've already thought you were going to go, but to follow what other people are doing. That, that I think, is when the real culture change can happen. Brilliant. Thanks, eh? Yeah, J Jules, I guess, yeah, where's your thoughts? It's almost like you need a catalyst, but then you need safety. It's almost like you need both, huh? You do. And, and this is the real challenge. You know, that that um, phrase, burning platform, I remember talking to MD, an MD of a small entrepreneurial company who three months into COVID was on the phone going, this is amazing. This is where the team, you know, the team is now where I've been wanting them to be for the last, you know, three years. Why couldn't they have got here earlier? Why are they now working in a way that, yeah. that they needed to be and that I knew they had the potential to be? And critically, how do I sustain this? Because this crisis will pass and I don't want them to go back into safe zone. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was a really good conversation. And, and I just said, okay, well, obviously, firstly, let's start with you. What's changing in you and how you're approaching it? But I think to, to pick up on the learning organization, I think, um, to have a learning organization, you have to be um, you have to have people who are comfortable being stretched and who want to learn. And that's going to be different for every individual. And what um, I'm noticing at the moment is that leaders are scared to push their people. Um, they're scared because it's a really tight. Um, obviously, the employment market is really tight. Um, I was, again, running a session last night. This is a tech, a massive global tech organization that, that, that was on the leading edge of technology, you know, Gartner, Sweet Spot and all the rest of it. And these are middle managers who are saying, I'm scared to lose my best people. I'm scared to push them. I'm scared to ask more of them because they might leave and we've got a hiring freeze. Mm. Um, and how do you create a learning organization with that cult, with that fear? So you have to overcome that fear and just say, actually, you can't treat everybody the same. So this whole idea of um, fairness, you know, fairness is such a, um, a, a big theme at the moment in terms of how do we treat our people fairly. And what I say is you cannot, as leaders, you can't be scared to push your people. If you are going to create a learning organization, you have to be willing to stretch your people to grow them to the best of their capability, to the best of their potential. That's going to look different for every person. So fairness doesn't mean treating every treating everybody the same it means stretching everybody to the edge of what they're capable of and that's the that's the fairness is what your expectation is the best that everybody can give and, and that was the final piece I really wanted to pick up on what Paul said is the accountability has to be for what people are contributing are they giving of their best are they stretching themselves not necessarily largely out of control which was a really valid point Paul. great thank, thanks Jules and I, I guess um yeah if we start to sort of segue towards creating a sort of change culture in, in my experience it you know as with most things it's a journey um in, the innovative muscle needs to be sort of grown over time we, we found so we went from 
as you know as a business grows I always liken it to the age of uh, the number of people to the age of it as it were so you know toddler early stages you know two three people you get to sort of you know six seven eight it starts to sort of, you know, grow up a bit and then you start to get to the typical teenage years and um it was around the difficult teenage years that we'd gone from just head down do 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 as a team because we were just trying to um you know establish ourselves get market share that type of thing and then then suddenly we turned around to the team and said okay we do want to start doing some creativity um but you know how do we do it in a in and maybe you know incorrectly but in a slightly controlled way and we we played around with the 20 percent time that google had but in a more in a controlled way where we did it on a set day you know it's called your 24 um and uh yeah we 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 prepared before it what was the thing that you're going to be working on who do you need what capability do you need in that team to be able to, to achieve it and so on so but um yeah and the first one was okay but not brilliant and they started to get better and better but um yeah i guess to, to paul what's your experience in in bringing about that it's almost like the alchemy isn't it it's making the fixed volatile and the volatile fixed so but it's interesting about the you know, creating the, the burning platform because i think there are examples where you do get that if you like you know top down element of a burning platform that can change the innovation state of a business so a, a project i worked on uh, a few years ago, uh, when I when I arrived uh, to to take it forward, you know, it just needed marshalling, loads of really bright guys, lots of good ideas. It just needed bringing together, you know. And we honed in on said, right, we've made a promise to a customer, we will deliver this system, this complex, you know, piece of technology on this date. We had a burning platform, and so we all pushed towards that. And it was amazing how much innovation there is. And it's one of those things, because I think what actually happens is there's, there's actually that paradox you talked about is it's really about how to sustain the burning platform once you put the fire out. Because actually what you get when you've, got a, when you've got a burning platform is often as not, you are delegating the authority to act down to the, the grassroots level. Because if they know what the goal is, they will take the action without fear of retribution. And so there is a bias to action. And what happens is when you've solved that problem, when you've got over that line, that's the hard bit. Because then you say, well, how do you sustain it? How do you create that thing, you know, that Jules was just saying that, you know, that you're looking for? How do you maintain that? It's really difficult because people can burn out, you know, and you do get that I'm over the line sort of feeling uh, as well with it. And I think it's one of the early points as well is sometimes this is just about pacing things properly. But there are definitely times when you can create that you know, sense of purpose through a burning platform that doesn't inhibit innovation. But the difficult bit is, what does it mean for the for the innovation legacy once you've put the fire out? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, Simon, like, um, if you've got, you, you get brought in, you know, quite often at the, the front edge of a, a project when there's, they're trying to bring in, you know, change. What's your... You know what's the the trigger or the catalyst normally for for you being you know someone picking up the phone and and giving you a call? It's essentially that what they want to do is they want to deliver better customer experience um, because they know that that's now correlated with better performance, you know, better interaction with their customers. So that that's 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 a given. The challenge is 
how they go about it. So what can what can be difficult is when you have to explain to people that it's not about features, it's not even about products, and it's not even about services, it's about what people believe and what they need. So what I tend to do is, is often use stories and comparisons as a way to get people to, to rethink how they're thinking about experience design, because often people think experience design is the user interface. And, you know, I'm trying not to burst into laughter when I think about that, but I'm kind of like, no, it's not the user interface. It's, it's much bigger than that. And I want to go back to a subject that you said. So we say, you know, we're talking about creating a journey. So what I'll say to people is, well, yeah, of course. And let's say that that journey is amazing. And it leads you to what I call the view of the, the view from the top of the mountain. And let's say that mountain is Mount Everest. Wouldn't that be the most amazing view ever? Of course, that would be the most amazing experience in the world ever. And they're all like, yes, yes, of course. That is the experience that we want. And I'm like, okay. But to get your customers to get that experience, they need to get there. And then they need to get back from there. And they're like, Simon, what are you talking about? And I'm saying there is critical interaction and things that people do before they go on that journey and things they do after that journey. And the journey is much bigger than you think it actually is and actually has a lot of other journeys involved. And I do that by kind of trying to explain that what they want to achieve is really, really, really complex. And experience design is really, really complex. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a systemizing way of thinking. And the other example I give them, and it's really relevant to, to the pandemic, I kind of say, right, it's, you, you're trying to solve a complex problem um, and you really don't know kind of how to do that. You're going about it in a way where you're not going to achieve it. And that can sound condescending or patronizing. And, and, and I kind of have to lead them to this point of what are the hard problems that this complex problem is made up of? Because maybe those, those are the things that you can start to tackle. And actually, by giving people the confidence to tackle those things, you start to address what the complex problem might be. And if you think about what we've gone through creating um, vaccines for uh, a, a, a virus, which is part of a family of viruses, which we've been studying as, as, as a species since the sort of end of the 1930s, it was exactly to your point, an event that led to a whole bunch of nations around the world coming up with that solution. Now, that is a complex problem solution. That problem could not have been fixed if, for example, we didn't know the structure of DNA. So the, so the mapping of DNA is a hard problem that allows us then to solve a more complex problem of vaccine design. And the issue is what I'm often explaining to people is you cannot jump over the hard problems to get to achieve the complex problem you just can't do it and it's difficult because it, you know they want to go fast they want to get there but what I kind of tend to say is look if we could solve some of these hard problems what you might unlock as Sue said is is quite incredible value um, both from a customer perspective and actually from a business perspective and and you know to, to Paul's point value for me is it it's like a marriage between the business and its market. It's super relevant and the business is successful because it's able to understand and deliver need 
in often a new and innovative way that, that allows the business to grow in an often new and innovative way. So it's not one thing or another, but a relationship. But I think it comes down to really trying to address hard problems. So, you know, people talk to me about innovation and I just go, yeah, that's great. What are the hard problems you're trying to solve? And I kind of go at it from that perspective. So I break innovation down into things that I feel can be manageable by by elements of an organization brilliant okay thank, thank you simon it might be a nice segue sue to yourself because you know what we're finding with machine learning and ai is we're able to um you know understand problems better than we used to so um uh yeah how do you how do you what's your thoughts on on the potential or the possibility as a result of um the advancement in in ml and ai and for me, I think there's huge changes we're going to see over the next few years. You know, just like we, we couldn't imagine back in the early 1990s what difference the internet was going to make to our businesses. And to say now we can't really imagine what difference over the next five or 10 years AI is going to make. But I think it will make a big difference to how we see problems. So we'll still be aware of, say, a business issue. But how we see it, because we're looking through the lens of, of data, I think will change a lot. And I'm not talking about artificial general intelligence coming along and solving all the problems for us. I still think the human brain is going to be brilliant at looking at subtle things and nuances. Uh, but I think the main issue that really though holding us back is, is that um, understanding of what these, not just AI, but other tools can do for us. So we might have a good picture of the problem, but not looking at new tools that we could use to solve it. And there was a government survey that came out back in January that said only 15, 15% of UK businesses are using any AI tool yet. And the main reason that, that most businesses are not using any is because the leaders don't understand it. They don't know that fundamentally it's about finding patterns in data and using those patterns to predict, to personalise, to automate. When you break it down as simply as that, and when I go in and talk to companies and I say, what do you want to be able to predict, to personalise or to automate? And they can come up with ideas, you know, no problem at all. But I think, I think the other thing really is about, I hope, maybe this is me just being um, wishful thinking, but about shifting power. So rather than saying the power is in the hands of a few, when we unlock the power of data and we unlock some of these tools, then lots more people can start to innovate and use them. But it's as as you were saying, it's, James, it's about being persistent, isn't it? Because the first time we do it, it's probably going to fall over, not quite do what we wanted. So how do we persist and, uh, and use those untapped talent in our organisations to, to keep moving forward? And I think for me, the one key to that is mentors or non-exec directors or sounding boards, somebody from outside business that's like a shoulder to cry on or somebody to G you up when things aren't going well so that you can sort of say, yeah, I am on the right path. I just need to keep that persistence going and keep keep learning. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Sue. Um, anyone want to jump in on, on that? I think there's a really interesting link there between what uh, Sue and uh, Simon have just said about, you know, sorting out these hard problems that then can solve the complex problem. Because, you know, the example with, uh, you know, DNA profiling and vaccines is a really good example. But coming back to Sue's, and, and to be fair, it's just, it's just the, you know, the first-hand experience of, you know, developing AI solutions on computers that took days, you know, to do the things that now take seconds. I mean, you know, that hard problem, of, you know, of accelerating you know increasing the power and the memory of processes you know and we're not even into things like quantum computing yet which is going to be another leap you know from where from where we are now now that has unleashed the capability 
for you know the types of data analytics and the type of AI work. And that was a hard problem that's been solved. And now you can move on to the next, the next one and the sorts of things that Sue was talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's, we could take it in a number of directions with, you know, Web3 and Metaverse, you know, Multiverse and so on. There's lots of, uh, there's lots coming through. Um, and maybe, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think if we, if we could just, I guess there's like a little bit more I'd like to do on like the, the culture and then we'll look at sort of where, where innovation is, is going and maybe back to you, Jules. Um, there's, you know, there's a difference in innovating in a company between it's just an individual innovating and then, you know, cross collaboration. Is there, is there something there that you've seen? Um, again, this is, this is how do we, how do we spark that, um, it's almost the skunk works, isn't it? It's known as where you you have a small team who go off and you know work on something that then can proliferate through the organisation. But um, yeah, what what's your you know should should innovation start with one, then two, then three, or should you know what's what's what have you seen work in the work that you do? Um, I think it's about having the. Um, the infrastructure in place to be able to share the ideas and then invite input and collaboration as early on in the process. The later on down the line it gets, the more difficult it is for people to then be able to contribute. Um, and that becomes tricky from an organizational structure perspective. Obviously, it depends on the size of the organization. Um, but this, um, it's, it's how quickly can ideas be disseminated and then built upon um, so that the richness um, is is enhanced, and this is obviously you know like why diversity is 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 so important, and having different voices in the room, and if the diverse if the diverse voices aren't in the team, where can they come from? Um, I was I was struck by Simon's. I just happened to be on the LinkedIn um, site. A beautiful story of n a Namibian practice of of. Um, how women go out into the bush and, and listen to an unborn baby's song. Now, imagine if that story was told and what that could spark in terms of, well, what need are we looking to address? And let's just bring in a story that may have nothing to do with the problem that we think we're trying to solve, but just see what it sparks. And this is what I mean by creating the time and space. Yeah. And so number of people so much as the so much as the practices that are in place to facilitate um, really rich imaginative dialogue and discussion. And, and for me, you know, I, I, I just have to say this, that the technology is great, um, but I really, you know, Sue's thing around wisdom and integrity is how do we hold on to our humanity? How do we grow and use technology to serve humanity, not have humanity serve the machine? And that's that that for me has to be the ethos that runs through any innovative practices and and from a culture perspective in terms of the bedrock of any innovative culture um if you want to do it with a, it, wisdom and integrity that kind of for me has to be a mantra that leaders have to establish from the outset amazing Jules. thank you yeah it's um yeah <laughs> that that recent post i've i've I put up about the uh, sentient uh, bots from Google is a really, you know, it sent shivers down my spine, even though it's, 
you know we're not there yet but it's it's a it's a it's a warning shot across the bow of uh bow that we'll be there you know so um yeah we're not we're not at the singularity but we're we're, we're traveling fast towards it so um in the in the last few minutes uh simon just be really interested and you know again it's a segue jules from what you're you've just been discussing around diversity and and simon you're in you're interested in accessibility and you know wh where do you see the future of you know innovation and design going i mean i suppose i have to to, to taper this with the fact that i'm an idealist at heart so i i'd like to think that it will go in a more inclusive way so i think it's absolutely imperative now more than ever before that we ensure that we design for all because we're all important and I think that point that Jules made around fairness is 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 really subtle but super super relevant in the sense of one person's fairness may be another person's um unfairness now that doesn't you know it's not binary I, I think that's that's the point that that Jules was making from my inter interpretation and and I and I think about you know what Paul was talking about in terms of learning and then about you know Sue thinking about in, in terms of boards and how we think of them in that way you could you could you can flip this idea of cognitive diversity on its head so I don't mean di diversity, ethical diversity, where we're talking about um, gender, religion, or stuff like that. Those things are super, super important. Of course, that goes without saying. I'm talking about how people think, as Jules said, in, in trying to embrace different people to, to think in different ways. And we, we know that when we can combine people in different ways, what we get is, is, is much greater innovation. And for me, ensuring that we design in an inclusive way means that we we are not going to leave behind or, or or exclude through ignorance people that can add so much i mean you go back 50 years and we wouldn't be able to basically appreciate the the, the genius or wisdom of uh, stephen hawking but we can through technology. We have to make sure that technology doesn't exclude people. So I think making sure that everything that's designed, I hope through technology should empower people more. I mean, especially digital technology, there's a real opportunity to ensure that we can design things that everyone can use in a way that's really difficult to, to retrofit in the physical world we don't have to go through those problems with, dig with digital technology. So from my perspective, encouraging everybody is, is really important because whilst we might not be able to uh, you know, agree because it's so interesting on what innovation is or what the value of innovation might be, from, from the simple perspective of, it, of exclusion, we can agree what that feels like and it feels bad. And you don't need a PhD in psychology to be able to work that out. So from my perspective, you know, innovation is designing with a sense that everybody can do something. And I'll leave you with this idea that we think about a lot is, is, is what we call situational accessibility. So people will say, yeah, but you're designing with people with different, they, they say disabilities. This is still used today. I don't use that word. I use the word abilities because we all have different 
abilities. And as you know, I have, uh, apart from being a man, many disabilities. So the, po the point is, is that can you imagine a parent on the bus carrying their child, trying to send a message to their partner about doing something? Well, it's going to be really difficult to do it with one hand. That's a situational environment that a lot of people have been in that I've been in where it's very difficult to, to do all these things at the same time. So being able to design technology so that it can support interaction in different ways, all that sort of situational perspective is what I mean about design for inclusion, about thinking much bigger and in a more systemizing way than the user interface or what we want someone to, to, to do. So I think that in the future, what we'll see is, is this much greater push towards inclusive design, which is, you know, a, a, a huge, gnarly, hairy, wicked problem, but, but one that I'm still happy to take on. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Simon. Um, hey, look, we're, we're um, just running out of time now. So in the last, um, you know, last minute or so, I just want to quickly go around the room. If you could wind the clock back 30 years, what advice would you give yourself, um, you know, in less than 20 words on how you could have been more creative or how you, you know, what, 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 what is it that you've seen that you wish you knew 30 years ago? So let's, um, Paul, you, you go first and we'll quickly go around the room. Yeah, I think for me, I, I put, having an engineering background, I think uh, what I learned sort of later in my career was that innovation isn't just about service and product development. Now, there's lots of different forms of innovation and lots of different value that can be created. It's not just about the engineering and the technology. In fact, it's very, very often not at all about the technology. Awesome. Thank you for uh, seeing. I was offered two jobs when I first graduated, and um, one of them was a trainee computer programmer. I, I wish I could go back and offer my young self the uh, the advice to take that job because you never know where it's <laughs> going to take you. Awesome, thank you, uh, Jules. Uh, not to be limited by um, by limiting self beliefs. So you know, I, my limiting self belief was I don't do science. Uh, you know, I'm I'm from the arts. You know, I'm a linguist. I don't do maths. Um, absolutely rubbish. Um, and so, don't yeah, don't carry those stories through. Awesome, great, thanks, Jules and Simon. It's a really good good question. Um, I think to be less less righteous with what you're thinking and to be more. Um, empathetic with what others can help you see and understand. I think if I could, you know, that's that's and that's how I do it now. But if I could go back, that's that's definitely what I would be saying. Shut up and listen. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Yeah, just it's and with all these things, it's easy to say and so hard to do. Hey, I don't know why, but it just it just is. It's a weird, you know, that's the journey as a human being, I guess. So um, so look, there you have it. Um, really really interesting topic and discussion today and thank you to all the panelists that you know um i you know understanding the hard problems to solve the complex is you know what we need to go through you know for tech to serve humanity not the other way around and for it tech to serve all and yeah have courage vulnerability and humility so um hope you've enjoyed today hope you feel a little bit wiser than you did before on this wednesday um if you want to see uh, other uh 
podcasts and versions of this, then go to wiserwednesday.com. Next one's on the 20th of July, um, all around founder fundraising and stagflation. And yes, we will explain what stagflation is. So um, yeah, look, thank you so much for joining and thank you so much to the panelists. So uh, yeah, little round of applause. Well done all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.